Well, g'day. Uh, this is just a short podcast recording for uh, those of you particularly who couldn't make it on Sunday to our equipped class where we finished looking at persecution in the early church. And so I'm going to cover back over the, the things that we talked about on Sunday. Um, and uh, even for those of you who uh, might just want a refresher, this could be a uh, helpful thing to listen to. The two things we're going to cover today is uh, first, why were Christians persecuted? Uh, as we saw last week, uh, Christians were persecuted fairly sporadically up till about 250 AD. Uh, so it was, it was pretty localized. Uh, it wasn't all across the board. Uh, and also, uh, it kind of flared up at different points and then settled back down. Uh, for the most part, Christians lived a fairly quiet life. But then in about 250 AD, uh, the Emperor Decius rose to power and things changed pretty drastically. Uh, what led to that? Why did Christians suddenly become very persecuted? Uh, and then as we saw last week as well, uh, the Emperor Diocletian rose to power in 303 AD. And again, Christians were really heavily persecuted for about 10 years. Uh, what led to that? Um, and what even led to the flare-ups in the times of sporadic persecution as well. So that's the first thing we'll look at. Uh, the second is, what do you do when persecution is all over? Uh, the church is now in a, a really difficult situation where some people have fled from um, the persecution. Others have denied the Christian faith in order to remain safe. And then some have stayed strong. And so there's this interesting conflict that develops. So those are two things we'll look at. Starting with the first. And uh, if you want to look along with the sheet from Sunday, uh, this is on the third page. Why were Christians persecuted? Three main reasons why Christians were persecuted, particularly uh, during the intense periods. The first was that Christians were considered scapegoats. And I'm just going to read a little bit here. There's three excerpts we're going to look at. Uh, each of these come from Stuart Colton's really helpful book, uh, Hitting the Holy Road. So the first one, uh, Christians as scapegoats. Uh, Christians were at times useful scapegoats, whether for an emperor like Nero in 64, or a mob of ordinary people as in Lyons in 177. Christians stood out as different and were until the 4th century enough of a minority to fix blame upon without fear of a backlash. They met in secret, worshipped a man who had been executed by Roman authorities, and were relatively powerless within Roman society. And all these factors made them easy scapegoats. Thus, the Christian apologist Tertullian, who we met a couple of weeks ago, sarcastically observed, If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens give no rain, if there is an earthquake, if there is famine or pestilence, straight away the cry is, away with the Christians to the lion. Tied into this was a fear that the Christians had brought the wrath of the Roman gods upon the empire. The argument ran that the gods, having made Rome the great empire it had become, were displeased that now the, emperor, the empire had a significant minority who refused to worship them. So hopefully you can hear what's happening there. Uh, Christians were an easy target. When something went wrong in the Roman Empire, 
it was easy just to go, oh, it must be the Christians that are at fault. So um, in the time of Nero, Rome is burning. He first fixes blame on who? On the Christians. Uh, again, because they're an easy target. Um, when uh, Dia, sorry, Decius comes into power in AD 250, um, just prior to this, a couple of years earlier, in 247, was the celebration of the Roman Empire's millennium. Uh, from their perspective, the Roman Empire had been ruling for a thousand years. And the mass doesn't really check out, but, you know, they, they thought that it had been a thousand years. And so... Um, there was this big celebration, there would be sacrifices to the Roman gods, there'd be offerings made, and um, the Christians refused to participate in that celebration. It was really noticeable that they weren't there. The very next year, there was a, uh, an a, uh, invasion from the Goths into the Roman Empire, and they were quite successful for a period of time. Uh, and so the people started to think, oh, this is because the Roman gods are angry at us, for not allowing the Christians, uh, or not making the Christians worship them. And so then Decius came to power in 250, and it was pretty easy to get an edict through uh, where um, Christians would be uh, put to the sword uh, for not worshipping Roman gods. So they were easy scapegoats. And it's worth just reflecting that, yeah, you know, this is unfair. Uh, it's not fair to blame Christians for these sorts of things, but then that's just part of life as well. Um, following Jesus means that we're going to cop it, and we'll cop it for things that we probably shouldn't have to cop it for. The second reason that Christians are often persecuted was prejudice. And this is really interesting. I'll just read the excerpt here. Prejudice against Christians ran deep. There was a great deal of fear and misunderstanding about Christian faith and practice. Allegations of cannibalism and incest inflamed people's prejudice against a sect that they did not understand. Certainly, Christians were not helped by their language. The injunction at the Lord's Supper to take and eat because, 1 Corinthians 11.24, this is my body which is for you, together with language that spoke of a love feast with brothers and sisters, was open to misinterpretation if someone was determined to take it the wrong way. However, some of the slander thrown against Christians range from the ludicrous to the vicious. A Christian lawyer called uh, Minucius Felix wrote a dialogue around AD 200 in which he expressed some of these accusations levelled against Christians. They met in secret, rejected the gods of Rome, observed secret marks and insignia, and called one another promiscuously brothers and sisters. He even raised the claim that Christians adore the head of an ass, that is a donkey. So interesting that there was this level of prejudice against Christians because of some of the language that they used and some of the, the sort of the rituals or sacraments that they did. Um, and, and worth noting that Christians didn't help the case by using this jargon and using these distinctive sacraments. Um, it, it is unclear in some ways to outsiders. So should they have kind of dumbed things down should they have changed the words to be more compatible with Greek culture or Roman culture? Should they have thrown away doing the Lord's Supper or things like baptism because it seemed so foreign? And I think we'd have to say, well, no. 
the Christians were right to use some of this particularly biblical language, things like brothers and sisters, um, things like the, the words of Jesus, this is my body which is for you. These things need explaining, not dropping out of the Christian lexicon. It's worth noting today that, um, you know, the, the, outs, the, the fact that outsiders to the Christian faith have prejudice against Christians is not a new thing. Uh, Stephen McAlpine, in his really helpful book, Being the Bad Guys, that was released a little while ago, he notes that 50 or 60 years ago, uh, Christians were seen as the moral good. Christianity represented uh, what is right and just in society. Probably 20, 30 years ago, maybe 40, um, it came to be seen that Christianity was more the moral neutral. It was one voice among many at a table. So Christians could speak up and Christianity could be considered a voice, but it wasn't the voice. Now, however, Christianity is considered moral evil. It's considered bad. Uh, it's bigoted. It's judging, it's condescending and arrogant to claim that there's only one way to know God, to know that there's, or to say that there's only one way to practice right sexuality, only one way to view life and death. Uh, all these things, of course, are, are anathema in our modern society. And so we're considered the moral evil now. Um, and for reasons that we might say, well, that's, that's not really fair. You haven't really properly considered what the Bible says. And uh, we should expect, actually, that that's the case. We should expect that prejudice will be at times unfair. And also, will at times be quite fair, where people have understood what the Bible says and they just hate it. They hate Jesus and therefore they'll hate us. This has always been the case. We can see it from the very early church. Last reason we can see here that Christians were persecuted is because they were considered atheists. It's because of their atheism. And this might seem like a really strange thing to say, but Christians were often called atheists by the Roman people because they refused to worship Roman gods. So as a, as a little bit of explanation, and again, this is Stuart Colton, uh, their refusal to participate in many of the special religious events of Rome only served to increase the hostility and suspicion against Christians. In AD 247, Christians had refused to be involved in celebrations of Rome's thousand year anniversary, as I was saying before, in many ways a celebration of the favor of the old gods. In AD 248, there began some serious invasions from Gothic tribes as well as internal divisions in the empire. And this raised the question in people's minds, are the gods punishing us for allowing quote unquote atheists to live among us. The refusal of Christians to participate in worship of the Roman gods puzzled the Romans and aggravated them. It was regarded as perfectly consistent to worship many gods. If a Christian wanted to worship their god, then that was fine. But why would they not also join in the worship of the gods of Rome? Christians were often criticized for being atheists because of their refusal to acknowledge the Roman gods. Hopefully you can hear that there. It's not atheists because they don't believe in God. It's atheists because they don't believe in the Roman gods. They're not acknowledging the Roman gods. And this was seen by many as a particularly stubborn refusal, a rejection of the society to which they owed so much. 
So the issue for many was less a religious question and more a question of loyalty to the state. And you can understand why Christians didn't want to worship the Roman gods. Uh, we're called to worship God alone, of course. It's the first commandment. Um, but also when, um, say, there'd be a, a meal to commemorate the Roman gods or even just sometimes a, a normal meal with Romans, um, there, there may well be a, a liquid offering poured out, uh, almost like how a Christian says grace, um, but, um, but without the, the heart behind it. There'd just be a liquid offering poured out by pagans um, as a, as a um, sign of commemoration of the gods. And, you know, so Christians wouldn't participate in those meals. It made them kind of a social outcast uh, and therefore incurred the suspicion of the Roman people. Um, again, just remembering that worshipping the Roman gods wasn't a, a heart thing. It wasn't a religious thing as much as just a paying your taxes kind of thing. It's just being loyal to the state. And so from the Romans' perspective, when the Christians didn't do this, it's like they're not paying their taxes. How can they get away with this? Uh, and so there's been this, this um, I think, probably rightly held uh, argument against them. Uh, but again, it's, it's something just that Christians have to cop. When we refuse to participate in some of the things that the world does because they would compromise our faith in Jesus, um, we have to expect that we'll get backlash from that. So probably looking at these reasons for which Christians were persecuted, it might put a little bit of steel in our spine to be willing to pay the same sorts of costs. Um, there are also times, of course, when it's wise to uh, not so much compromise as um, be willing to, to, you know, so take, take the example with the, the liquid offerings. Um, Paul says in Romans 14, as well as an argument in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, that food offered to an idol is nothing at all. A liquid offering poured out would be nothing at all. So you can eat the food that's been, um, you know, uh, uh, commemorated to an idol, commemorated to a false god. That's okay for you to do because it's a false god. It doesn't actually exist. Christians would have been free to sit down at a table with Romans after a liquid offering had been poured out. Um, but at the same time, um, maybe there were other factors there that, that would have made that appear like they were licensing the Roman gods. They were actually saying, no, we're worshipping with you, uh, in which case it wouldn't have been proper. So some of these things are tricky to work out, but um, it's probably better for us to err on the side of faithfulness rather than looking to compromise and adapt, um, particularly when the state is hostile, as in the case of, of Rome at this point. So some food for thought there. Um, and just as another reflection too, uh, of course, these are, are just historical reasons why Christians were persecuted. You know, the prejudice, the scapegoats, their atheism. But ultimately, Christians were persecuted because the world hates Jesus, so it'll hate Jesus' people. And some, like Tertullian, uh, actually said that the real reason Christians are persecuted is because Satan wants to destroy the work of God, and he'll use anything he can to do it. He'll use scapegoating. He'll use prejudice. He'll use emperors with a bee in their bonnet. Um, and I think that Tertullian is right about that. But what we see, of course, is that God is still on the throne. Uh, Satan doesn't actually succeed. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, that is, not even the death of believers can stop the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. 
And that actually, although that's encouraging, it also brings us to another issue because, of course, the, the church did survive this persecution, uh, both in 250 AD, 313 AD, and, and everything in between. And during those times when persecution stopped, it did actually bring a new issue to the fore. What do you do when it's all over? What do you do when you have Christians who've lost a lot and Christians who've lost nothing and maybe even denied the faith, but now they're back in the same fellowship? It's a tricky situation. And just to kind of lead us into what this would have been like for the early church, I want us to take this from the perspective of the Bishop of Carthage, Cyprian. Uh, We met Cyprian, I think, last week uh, because we noted that he fled into the desert when things got really hard in 250 AD. Uh, So if you don't remember, um, Christians were forced to take a libellus, so a uh, a certificate saying that they were worshipping the Roman gods and denying the Christian god. So they would have to go down to the marketplace or to another place of sacrifice, make a, a sacrifice to the Roman gods and to the emperor, and then they'd be issued with this certificate libellus that they would sign and they'd place in their home. So if the Roman guards came around to, to make sure that you're not worshipping a false god from their perspective, they'd want to see that you've got the libellus. Uh, oftentimes as well, and I didn't say this last week, but Christians would actually have to hand over their copy of the scriptures. So that adds a, another dynamic to it as well. Uh, you're handing over your family Bible um, or whatever case the case may be. Um, Uh, you're handing over whatever parts of the scriptures you had at that point in order to get this libellus. And last week, we we tried to empathize with these believers a bit. What were some of the struggles that they would have had to to go through in order to make that decision? Um, And Cyprian was one of those who said, it would be more strategic for me to actually leave this whole situation. And so he fled uh, and, uh, and decided I can lead my congregation from afar with letters. Uh, Zoom wasn't around back then, so he just sent letters back and forward, and then he thought, you know, when the persecution ends, I'll come back and help rebuild the church. And 14 months later, that's exactly what he did. Persecution ended, he came back, he's ready to lead, but now the church has changed because, of course, uh, lots of people have denied the faith, but there are some who haven't some who've lost a lot, uh, and they're called the confessors, uh, particularly in his church, uh, the church at Carthage. They're the confessors of Carthage. These are people who didn't take the libellus. Uh, some of them lost wives, lost husbands, lost children. Some of them lost their businesses. Some of them were arrested for a lot of the time. Um, some of them lost their houses. And so I just want you to imagine, Cyprian comes back in and he sees these confessors now have been through a heck of a lot and they've got some ideas about how to lead the church. The question is, should Cyprian now lead or has he forfeited his right to leadership by running away? Maybe the confessors should lead because they've paid so much to be in the position they're now in. They've proven themselves really faithful. So there's one question there. But there's a second question. What do we do with the people who took the libellus? Because imagine the situation. 
Imagine that you're one of the confessors. And so maybe you've lost someone very close to you, or you've been arrested, maybe you've lost your house, your business, a lot of money as a result of all this. And you're sitting in the church congregation on a Sunday morning, and then in comes Jim. And you recognize Jim. Uh, you haven't seen Jim for about 14 months. In fact, when the persecution got really bad, he vanished. Uh, and in fact, what you now know about Jim as he sit next, sits next to you is his clothes look really nice. Uh, he's sitting there with his wife and his two kids. Um, and, uh, and Jim's business has actually been booming during this time of persecution because Jim took the labellus and traded in his scriptures uh, and, uh, and things have been going really well for him. But now Jim wants to come back to church. But we've got a bit of a problem, don't we? Because he's sitting next to you, one of the people who's lost everything. Now he's feeling perhaps a bit ashamed about the fact of what he's done. And you're feeling perhaps a bit like this is unfair. How can Jim just walk back in through the door with his family when I've lost so much? So there's a, now a potential disunity that could come up in the church. What do we do with these people who have lapsed in the faith over this period of time uh, and given up on um, publicly following Jesus, but now want to come back to church? And the two questions that we've got here, who should lead and what should we do with the lapsed Christians are kind of related. Because should Cyprian, the bishop, the leader here, who left the congregation behind, should he decide who comes back in? Or should it be the confessors who decide? Should it be no one at all? And actually, it's just if you want to come back, then come back. I wonder what you think about that. Uh, we had a, a really good discussion in class about these things. So you might want to ask some people who were there uh, last Sunday, uh, what, what did you think? Um, who should lead in this situation and how should it be decided? Just to run you through a couple of quick thoughts and if you want to pause the podcast at this point and think about your own response first, then feel free to just now. Otherwise, uh, pushing ahead. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that Cyprian was rightly concerned for order, particularly for order in the church. And it might seem a bit foreign or offensive to us in our highly individualistic culture uh, to think that, you know, Cyprian can just come back in and lead again and say, well, we need order and I'm the man to bring it. But God does want his church to be orderly. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for example, uh, where you have believers in the church of Corinth speaking in tongues in the public meeting. And it doesn't actually build up the church, it's chaos. You have others prophesying out of turn. Uh, Paul speaks against that chaotic sort of arrangement of church and says that God is a God of order. He wants things to be done in their right and proper way. It's why also we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we have elders and deacons, their responsibilities and character traits outlined. In Acts chapter 6, deacons are put in place to try and bring order to the church in that situation because Gentile widows weren't being appropriately fed. Jesus called 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and the early church recognized a particular leadership responsibility that they had. So God's church is supposed to have some kind of order, particularly order in leadership. 
And as things played out, Cyprian was actually affirmed as a leader again and had a lot of sway over the, the church at Carthage again. Um, the confessors actually were, were at a point uh, reasonably okay with giving that leadership back to Cyprian. Uh, my understanding is that they did recognise that there should be some kind of order, particularly in a fairly chaotic and um, a difficult time like what they were facing. And so Cyprian went off and met with other bishops from other places and they, they came up with some um, directions for what to do with the lapsed Christians. But that is a good question to ask. Should we just accept everyone without asking any questions? Or should we reject everyone who had a labellus? These were the sort of questions that the bishops were discussing together. Um, and what makes it even more difficult is remember, not everyone who had a labellus had actually made a sacrifice. Some of them had actually bought their labellus on the black market, so they'd never made a sacrifice to the Roman gods. But by all accounts, it looked as though they had. When other believers would come over, say, for a secret Bible study, they might stumble upon the labellus hanging on a wall or hidden in a drawer in case the Roman guards came around. I wonder if you were in that meeting among the bishops, what criteria would you want to use for deciding who should be allowed back into the fellowship and under what terms? Would you accept people without asking questions? Would you reject everyone who'd taken the labellus? Would you do something in between? And again, if you want to pause the recording and just have a quick minute to think about what your response might be and even what uh, biblical texts might affirm or challenge your response, now would be a good time just to pause the recording and do that. But otherwise, I'll, I'll give you a few thoughts that um, Cyprian and others had. So there was one man named Novation, and he had a particularly hardline response. He argued that apostasy, taking the labellus and denying Jesus, was so serious that the church could never actually assure someone that they could be forgiven of it. So the church historian Eusebius, um, he finds a quote from Novation that uh, for those who made sacrifices to the Roman gods, quote, there was no hope of salvation for them now. Even if they did everything in their power to prove their conversion sincere and their confession wholehearted. You know, the ship had already sunk. Give up on it. Don't try and get the ship back out of the ocean. Now, initially, Cyprian and some of the bishops really actually liked that point of view, even though it's very, very harsh. Uh, the reason that they liked it was because it, it really preserved holiness, right? Um, these people have denied Jesus Christ publicly to great gain for themselves, and they have harmed their brothers. Um, they need to be held to account for this. We can't just willy-nilly assure them of Jesus' forgiveness. So Cyprian quite liked that. But uh, in further discussion and further thinking, um, he, he began to lean away from it for, for various reasons. One was pretty pragmatic. So if you have this perspective, the church is, is not going to grow in numbers. <laughs> it's, it's a fairly practical and, and, you know, maybe a bit too economic a consideration. Uh, but um, that was one of the things that they thought through. 
Another was, of course, just balancing it with grace. And this is something that the confessors actually leaned more towards. So the brothers who'd been wronged by um, uh, Bill and Jim, who denied the faith and, and had great gain, the confessor's posture towards them mostly was one of, we actually want to welcome you back in, brothers and sisters. We want you to know the forgiveness of Jesus. Um, we want you to, to welcome, or we want to welcome everyone who says they're sorry. And we want to do it immediately and without too much further question. So the confessors leaned a lot more towards grace, you would say. The challenge for Cyprian and the other bishops was, how do we actually preserve both holiness and grace in this situation? Because we want to welcome everyone uh, who, who repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus. Think about Peter, who denied Christ three times, even looking him in the face while he's uh, hanging on the cross, um, he, he, or while he's, sorry, while he's on the way to the cross, um, Peter denies him, and yet Jesus restores him. So restoration is certainly possible. But there also has to be some kind of repentance. Um, so Novation and his hardline response is discarded. Novation ends up actually excommunicated because he won't sort of take the hint that his perspective isn't biblical. But it's really hard. How do you keep both holiness and grace? It's really difficult. Do you wait for the lapsed brothers or sisters to, you know, have a, a period of time before they come back to church? Do you give them 14 months sort of in exile because they were 14 months denying Christ before they can come back in? Do you get them to contribute to a, a sort of a fund for those who lost homes or um, lost family among the confessors? How much does each person give if you do something like that? Is that legalistic? Yeah, they, these are really tricky questions. And so the, um, the bishops decided that there should be some kind of clear repentance before someone rejoins the church. And it varied based in different regions under different bishops. So some would have like almost an anti-libellus that you'd sign. So you'd sign a certificate recanting of your... Um, uh, denial of Christ and then you might hang that up in your home or you might show that to the congregation to show you know I'm, I'm essentially ripping up my labellus um, I'm repenting of the fact that I did that some said that you'd have to do a penance so you'd cry in sackcloth and you would pray and fast to show that you were really repentant um, some did say that you couldn't come back for a time so whether it's 14 months um, some took the really peculiar stance of saying you couldn't come back to church, you couldn't be considered part of the fellowship until you die. <laughs> so at the moment of your death, you'd be restored to fellowship, and that strikes me as fairly pointless. <laughs> um, some said that, and this is quite a uh, beautiful picture, I think, some said that you'd have to publicly confess before the church that you denied Christ and harmed the church in doing so. Um, but then upon your confession, the elders would come and lay their hands on you and prayerfully receive you back into the church. So it's real public repentance, but it's also saying, you know, you're our brother, you're our sister, nothing should keep you from being among us. Now, again, not easy stuff, and the church didn't get it totally right. Um, they're working it all out. 
But um, what you can see, I hope, is that they're attempting to hold both holiness and grace together. And we all might lean one way or another, depending on personality factors here. Uh, so your response in this situa situation might have been, I just, I just want to hug my brother because, you know, I've been there. I know what it's like to, to struggle with publicly declaring my faith at great cost. And I just want to assure them and, and help them. I want to show them grace. Um, or on the other hand, you might go, oh, but they've, they've done so much damage and the holiness of church really matters. They've got to do something to make this right. And both postures are right in a way, but shouldn't be exclusive of each other. Um, in fact, we don't really need a, a balance of holiness and grace, like just enough grace and just enough holiness to keep it in balance. We actually need both fully. We need the biblical response of complete grace and the biblical response of complete holiness. And in that regard, Cyprian was at least partly right. He had a posture of wanting to receive people who sincerely repented and showed evidence of it. Um, again, without being perfect in, in his response and the other bishop's responses. It's worth us thinking about this in terms of church membership as well. Um, we're, we're undergoing quite significant changes as a church at the moment, and we've got church membership classes coming up. How will we decide who is actually part of our fellowship, part of the Wyoming Church of Christ membership? It can't just be everyone without question, and nor do we want to have so high a wall that no one makes the bar. We need to work out a way of, of having both holiness and grace together. And um, if you come along to one of our membership classes, you'll, you'll have that explored in more detail. Final reflection would just be that there's a great encouragement in this. Uh, when the church is pushed by these really huge questions that could bring disunity and really crush the church, that's not what happens. The church actually grows. Again, remember Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So those who paid a heavy cost for the church actually were the ones who helped it grow. And they're the ones who, who helped navigate this really difficult situation in bringing in lapsed Christians. Um, and it might even be helpful to reflect on the words of Revelation that the, um, the martyrs overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony whether it is the persecutions of Decius or Diocletian, or whether it is the difficulty of bringing unity in a church where some Christians have refused to worship Jesus and have paid a cost. Um, oh, sorry, the other way around, have refused to uh, worship the emperor and paid the cost, and, and others have um, refused to pay that cost and worship the emperor. Um, at the end of the day, Jesus builds his church, and he builds it on the word the testimony of the saints who are willing to keep worshipping him or even repent of the fact that they haven't been worshipping him. Bless you as you reflect on these things and uh, next week we're going to start looking at some heresies. What are some of the thought systems that really challenged the early church? Because they didn't just face difficulty from outside, they also faced difficulty from within. And a question that we're going to start with next week that you might like to think about is, what is a heresy? How would you define what a heresy is? How is it different to simply a difference of beliefs? 
Hopefully this has been helpful for you and I look forward to seeing you next week, guys. See you later.